today's program sort of started, what, like two years ago? Okay, time goes, time flies when you're having fun. But it's always a pleasure to see her because she comes sort of like a snowbird, but instead of going to Arizona, she hangs, up in Chica hangs out in Chicago, right? Wouldn't you say you're... <laughs> but I have friends who live in the UP, and they said only somebody from the UP would understand that you go to Chicago for the winter. So I look at you as sort of being the same position. Okay, never mind. That was maybe I thought it was a great idea. So anyway, so she she did this program for the hundredth anniversary, and I just sort of glibly said, "Why don't you make a book out of that?" Right. That was the glib suggestion that kept you at the typewriter and scanning pictures and meeting all the people at the local historical societies for the next year or so, right? Yes, you do, and you learn a lot about territories. We sh I, I'm involved with the local historical society, and I know there's some little territorial issues. Not so much us, but some of the people around us. So anyway, Sharon, I want you to come on up. All right, a culinary history of Maine. Lobster. Thanks for coming. Any questions? <laughs> no, actually, there's a lot more about Maine history and foods, uh, foods that are here, foods that have gone. Um, I'd like to kind of uh, add on what Kathy said about my trips to Chicago and why that odd combination of Maine for part of the year and Chicago for part of the year. Uh, when I was first um, first coming, well, when I was going anywhere uh, from school, I was, well, let me give you back up. I was born in Virginia, raised in Florida, lived in North Carolina for a little while, and we would come to visit relatives uh, all the time, uh, and we would go to places that had a tank of lobster, and I'd say, that's what I want. So I always loved lobster, so that has a bearing uh, in this. And another bearing was when I was about six years old, my parents said, Sharon, why don't you make the salad? Well, I didn't want to chop up and do all that stuff, so I thought, well, if I don't make it very well, maybe they won't ask me to do that again. So I added some beet juice on top of it, and they said, as parents do, that's wonderful. And uh, they didn't really ask me to do salads too much after that, though. Uh, but it made me wonder about even people who don't cook or don't want to. Uh, it's easy to say, no, I don't cook, or I don't want to cook, because they might be forced into cooking, uh, particularly as, as history goes along with women and men's roles. Uh, it all changes. Everything changes. Um, I went off to Chicago, from Florida. I went to New York for the summer and got a really great job with uh, Xerox Corporation. I got that partially because I didn't know how to type. <laughs> I never took typing. I, I refused to take typing, uh, which put me, as a female, particularly in that time, you could be a housewife, uh, but you could be a, a, a secretary, you could be a teacher, or you could be a nurse. Those were pretty much the, the field that you could go in. 
because I couldn't type, they had to figure out something else to do with me. And I ended up with some unusual jobs along the way. Most of them involved training. Um, so I was working for Xerox banks in New York, doing training and customer relations. Uh, I went with Xerox Learning Systems in Atlanta, uh, traveling in nine states with training programs. Um, I traveled across the country for Clinique um, training, uh, opening stores. And I um, was transferred by a company to Chicago. I love Chicago. Um, the first, uh, I finished at Northwestern because I hadn't finished my degree. I was a group personnel manager for Marshall Fields. Uh, I was in charge of training for the Chicago Public Libraries. Um, did a program based off of Hamburger U for training for, for uh, employees there was always involved with food. Uh, since I had my first job in New York, uh, I was, I was um, getting books and testing out recipes on people. So there was always an interest because I like to do entertaining and when you think about it, food is what brings us all together. Even today, how many times have you talked about food? I wonder what they're going to bring for food to the, to the book talk. Should we have breakfast first? What about lunch? Should we go someplace for lunch afterwards? Uh, it's all about food. And it was all about food from, from really from the, from the beginning. So I went, I was walking along Michigan Avenue, and I saw a sign at a travel agency. They did have them. Goodbye, travel agencies. Um, and it said, you can travel on a train anywhere on the East Coast or mid Midwest uh, for one very reasonable fee. So I thought, I'm going to go across overnight. I could have made a better decision on that one. But overnight to Boston, rent a car, and drove up the coast. And as I drove up the coast of Maine, it just got better and better. And when I reached Mount Desert Island, Bar Harbor. It was wonderful. Acadia National Park, beautiful views with no effort, uh, no poisonous snakes or anything, so you can walk anywhere you want. You don't have to worry about getting hurt. And it was on an island, Mount Desert Island. So I thought, okay, um, I will do cooking there. But Going back to Chicago, I started a cooking school and catering company after working for the city. And I was doing that in Chicago and in the Virgin Islands. Warm place, but I love Chicago and I love Maine. So that's the combination I have right now. Um, writing a book, it was Kathy's idea. It was Kathy's idea. <laughs> Uh, many people over the years had said, well, Sharon, you have a cooking school in Bar Harbor, Maine. You should have, write a cookbook. And, of course, that's unnatural because there are no cookbooks anywhere. Nobody can get any information about food anywhere. And I thought, one more cookbook. I don't know. I don't know. So Kathy gave me some good information and I contacted the publishing company, and within 
a week or so, I was under contract to write a book in two, two years. Now keep in mind, I never learned how to type. <laughs> so all of a sudden, that was more of a, a, a concern than it was in my earlier years. Um, but I knew some about the history of, of Maine. And um, I, uh, was, I gave an idea for the title. It, they came back with the title being Down East, A Culinary History of Down East Maine. Um, Down East Maine, maybe. Does anybody know where Down East Maine is? It's confusing. Down East Maine means if you're in Boston or if you're in Portland and you're trying to get to Bar Harbor, you have to go downwind, which is north, and east. So it's down east, but it's actually going north. <laughs> um, there's another saying in Maine of you can't get there from here, and that's very true. Uh, it's very difficult to get someplace without going someplace first to get to someplace. Uh, so it's rare that people come there to go somewhere, to come to the island on their way someplace else. Uh, it's a place where people, it's a destination, more of a destination. Uh, a little bit more about the book. Um, I remember somebody in one of the talks saying, I keep getting sidetracked, and nobody gave them a, a clear idea of what that meant. I think every writer in the beginning, a new writer, gets totally sidetracked. You say, oh, well, that's a certainly interesting person, and you could write a book about that person. Or that's an interesting ingredient, and you could write a book about that. So it's easy to kind of go off in different directions. Deadlines. Um, I thought I'd have some extra time at the end because I had gotten all my pictures together. And then I realized that you had to get copyright approval. Well, some of the old pictures, I had to try and track them down. And some of them, people said, oh, I don't know. We just always used it. Ask another historical society. And we go to them, and they'd say, oh, well, yeah, we just use that. I don't know where it came from. So the publisher said, no, you can't use it. So I, was, uh, I took much more time with pictures than I thought, which I thought I would have extra time to kind of review the book. The uh, publisher sent me a preview of the cover. And so I looked at it, and I said, It should be down east, all one word, down east. And you have it in two words, down east. And he said, well, all of our books, we've done lots of books on down east, Maine, and uh, it's down and east. And I said, you know, I'm from away. <laughs> in Maine, that's a really very important Signification. If you're from away, even if you were born there, you're probably from away, and you have to be there generations to be from there. So me writing a book that being from away, I said it's really very important that do we have the title right. <laughs> 
So he said, well, I, he said, it's pretty much done, and down east, fine. I said, well, how about if you put down east all together in capital letters and then put it down east in the, in the, and he said, no, you have to have it consistent. So I um, started contacting people, uh, people who were in charge of tourism for the, for the state, people who were in all different kinds of capacities, who had some authority. And he finally said, okay, we'll change it to Down East. Now, understanding that, now you know the direction to go to get to Bar Harbor. You go downwind and then east. Um, down east is an area as well. And down east, this area, is basically Hancock County and Washington County, counties on the coast that border Canada. We have the world's largest supply of wild Maine blueberries. We have lots of lobster. We have a number of different uh, seafoods and plants and things like that, and a rich history. So that's what I wrote about. Basically, these two counties, some of it is still a lot of wilderness, just trees and trees and trees. Um, and some of it is more built up, and some of it is touristy. But the food uh, all makes sense when you look at the history of food in, in down East Maine. Probably food makes sense with any area if you look at the history of it. But because we were kind of a new one uh, when our history started, it gives you a better foundation, I think, to understand food. And that's what I wrote the book for, for people to understand where they're coming from with food, to understand how it makes sense, and to understand uh, where we are now, maybe to look at some of the things that we're eating or doing uh, that might make more sense if we studied it a little more carefully. So, the book. Um, about 1600, the Spanish came to that area. They went back and reported that the uh, Native Americans were a uh, native, uh, the natives were naked slaves of the devil. And that went back. Spanish still tried to uh, come into the area, but British and French were next. The British um, had one theory about the Native Americans, uh, and that was that they weren't baptized, and they didn't have houses, and they didn't wear many clothes. Now, the Native Americans looked at the British and said, they're out trying to do stuff in the field, they don't know what they're doing, and they also are wearing all these clothes, which makes it really hard to do that kind of work. They were building brick houses. How are they going to get food when the seasons changed? Well, the Native Americans changed uh, with the season, and the communications problems started from the beginning. Um, Native Americans, they were off, and they were doing 
their thing, hunting or uh, planting, and they came back to the other area, and they found that the British were in the process of building uh, houses. Um, the uh, foods, when they first came, when the British and French first came, um, were foods that the Native Americans had. Um, things like the Three Sisters, which maybe a lot of you already know that. But the Three Sisters are cornstalks, strong cornstalks, be, uh, beans that are, that are planted next to them so that they have some support, and squash at the bottom, keeps out weeds somewhat, and it also provides some potassium back into the soil. Um, so, the corn. Something that we don't do too much of now. When I go into a store, I see uh, a barrel full of, of the husks. Um, but these used to be used for uh, children's toys. They used to be made for uh, 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 woven into mats. Um, they used to be used for putting food in them, cooking food in them, uh, and making actually little pots for the, to, to do cooking in. When they finished with these, they had the silk. The silk, uh, they would either dry or immediately use as a tea or as a broth. The um, broth could be, again, if it was dried, they could use it in the winter as well, and it gave them a good soup starter. But it is said that this uh, would uh, help kidneys and support bladder health. Doesn't taste bad. Tastes kind of mellow. A little bit of a corn taste to it, but not. So then they would either dry or eat the corn. Some of it they would save for the next season to plant. Some of it they would bury for the winter. And then they had the, the uh, cob. So what do you think they did with that? Waited for the trash men to come. No, 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 no trash men. They would dry the cob and use it as a fire starter. So if you do any kind of cooking outside, those are some things you might think. And if you have any little children around or people who are interested in doing something with these, it's a thought. In the um, early 1600s, um, both the English and the French were trying to settle in the area. The British said to the Native Americans, we own this now, and so you have to do what we said. The French came in and said, we're here as advisors. Whole different way for Native Americans to look at them. They tended to like the French better. They had a hard time uh, fighting, um, or supposedly trying to fight against the French. They said, the French are our brothers, the English are our cousins. Um, and uh, uh, the uh, early 1600s, that's the way that went. 
But also another problem that they had was that the British came and, you know, if you have people over, you're trying to make friends with food, right? Well, the same thing with the English when they came in with their ships. They wanted to make friends with the Native Americans because they could get stuff from them. They could get beaver pelts and other, other things. So what they would do is they would cook up some peas, English peas, probably dried, brought over, and, in a, and cooked in, in a kind of a can. And they loved it. The Native Americans loved that. The Wabanaki loved those peas. So when they were invited over to the ship, they'd say, oh, yeah, that'd be nice. They gave them some time, some to take back to their family. The Native Americans were very polite. They would bring it back, the, the container, back to the ship. In, um, I think it's 1604 or 1605, they uh, had them over for some peas. They suggested, hey, we've got some more peas on the ship, want to come in and have some more peas? And they said, oh, yeah. Three of them went in, two of them stayed on shore, and they said, oh, the peas are downstairs in the galley. See, we're down there, they were locked in. The other two um, that were on shore were kidnapped and dragged in, and they sailed away with them. Uh, later, and these are all in Chronicles, this isn't just a guess. These are all uh, parts of the, the diaries that the ships had. So, um, first of all, their loved ones were crying on the shore saying, let them go, which didn't happen. And they also, all of the Native Americans heard of this very quickly, and some of them thought that maybe they were even killed. But the idea that the British had was to capture them, teach them English, and then they would be guides for them so that they, they would have uh, guides. Uh, both the English and the French thought they were very attractive people. They were healthy. There were no mental signs of problems or physical signs of problems. No one hunched over or um, having difficulties of any type. So that basically, they were healthy. Um, and the Native Americans helped the English and the French with some of the diseases that they came over with. A scurry, a scurvy was one of them because there, there wasn't an option of having a lot of fruit and vegetables because they didn't keep well coming over. So a lot of the sailors suffered from that. And the Native Americans gave them spruce buds, which is a spring thing. Uh, it's a little tip of the spruce tree that uh, tastes a little lemony in the early spring but it's just super loaded with vitamin C. So you can make teas out of it too, um, as well. But they gave them that and they helped cure some of the Native Americans, which was really nice. They were, they were nice. <laughs> um, when the English uh, started making money from the colonies, uh, it was basically lumber and uh, things like that. Problems because people were get, making money, so they were happy until the, until the uh, British started marking the trees saying, you can have those trees over there, these are our trees. 
And so that didn't make people very happy. The other thing was that the, the colonies were, um, were, I think of a right word of saying it, concerned that there was a new quartering law which meant if the English sent somebody to your house, they'd show up at your door and say, I'm here, I need a place to sleep and something to eat. No money, you owed that to the English government. So uh, people weren't too crazy about that whole thing. Uh, they started, I think, they started using some of the terminology for cooking as a kind of a get back at you kind of thing, like blueberry slump or grunt or things like that. Um, because they could kind of do that, say, you know, oh yes, we're having blueberry slump tonight uh, to the people who were staying with the, the quartering. So that's in the early days of around the, the turn of the century, we were doing really, really well with our ice business. <laughs> Maine has rivers all over the place, so we have lots of seafood. And in the winter, the lumbering cut down the trees. And in the spring, the rivers were flooded with ice. So to use that ice, they would cut it up and they would ship it out. Um, I found out more recently that ice was uh, insulated with uh, sawdust, which certainly makes sense. And uh, the ice was shipped to the Caribbean. The ice was shipped to India. Um, and we were, we were doing really well. If anybody wanted ice in their drink or ice in their ice box or ice to refrigerate their food, we could do that. Uh, because of the, the um, uh, power uh, from the water power, we also became, in 1873, we were considered to be on a path to be the top manufacturer in the country. Well, this was because of water power. So it was cheaper for them to send cotton up and start textile mills than to do it at home. We still see this in different ways here. So that was uh, looking at what we were doing. Fish and lobster weren't that important then, uh, but uh, when in 1873, cans had come in to, to being, and you were very much in fashion if you had canned goods. So uh, it was stated in one of the books on, uh, on uh, Maine history that Maine undoubtedly had the best cream corn uh, in the country. Canned cream corn. So um, as things happened, as things changed, um, things come and go, just like that tourist uh, um, uh, industry 
uh, on Michigan Avenue, that travel agency. Uh, our ice industry seemed to hit a big snag when the refrigerators came in and when electricity came in. So all of a sudden, nobody needed ice as much, and that was an industry that pretty much dissolved away. Um, cans were fashionable for a while, um, very fashionable after the war, uh, World War II, and then uh, now they're not as fashionable as they were, partially because of freezers, partially because of just that you have everything around that's fresh. So again, changes over, over history. In our area, not only is it, um, there were some towns that were lumber towns. The lumber industry started slowing down. Uh, areas that had hotels and cafes and restaurants and uh, a community kind of dissolved away where there's nothing there anymore except houses. Um, but there are still houses there. Um, one of them I mentioned in the book is the uh, one in Columbia Falls. Um, there's a, a historic house there. And next door, uh, the first woman pharmacist, and this was about 18, that was about 1818, the first woman pharmacist in Maine uh, lived there, and she would plant things like uh, witch hazel, some herbs, dandelions, and other medicinal and food needs. Which always brings me up to, the to be able to talk a little bit about the poor dandelion. Um, you probably know the dandelion as weeds. I tried to figure that out. Um, the closest I could come was it in medieval history, um, people had too many slaves with nothing to do, and they said, let's make my yard look different than your yard, and decided on what to pull. But dandelions are not indigenous to the United States. They are indigenous to uh, Europe, and the English brought them over and planted them here. Now, as people moved west, they planted them as well, and pretty much the whole country can find dandelions. But people, I don't know for what reason, maybe it was a time when they didn't like British very much, or uh, I, I don't know, but it became very popular to have a greener yard than the guy next door, which meant those yellow things in the garden were not good. And that showed that you weren't as good as your neighbor if you had dandelions. Uh, they are medicinal. Uh, they, you can eat the whole plant. Uh, it has higher amounts of lutein in it than probably anything else. And it's also uh, higher in, in a lot of the vitamins than kale. Um, the flower, you can use that certainly for dandelion wine, um, but you can also use it to sprinkle over a salad or something. The stems are usable. The root, uh, they used to um, make uh, coffee out of it. I've done that before. Uh, it tasted a little unusual to me. I think maybe half and half with coffee might be okay, but it was, it's an acquired taste. Um, and the leaves, if you pull the leaves in the spring, and they haven't been sprayed with Roundup, 
then you have a uh, very healthy leaf that's uh, not as bitter as uh, later in the year. Something to think about. But if you want to keep on using Roundup, you might be eligible for a large class action suit <laughs> at some point in time. I mean, anyway, um, so that is uh, about her, the lady who was uh, the uh, first pharmacist in Maine. Painters came. The plain air painters came to Bar Harbor and Mount Desert Island. And that's what started the tourist area. They went home, and people saw these gorgeous, beautiful scenery. And they said, where is that place? I want to go there. So the very wealthy uh, could get there fairly easily by steamship, and uh, they started going there. At first, they started staying with people in their houses. Uh, then they stayed in little hotels. And then the very wealthy, the, the Pulitzers, the Rockefellers, the, um, um, there's a lot of wealthy people who live there. A lot of wealthy people who still live there. Um, they called themselves rusticators. It was kind of like camping for them. But after a little while, they thought, this is nice, but I'd like to have my house here too. And so they built cottages of like, 40, 40 rooms, uh, huge places. Uh, and with them, they brought staff, and they brought more of the elegant dining that, uh, that the local people were not uh, as adver ad did not know as well. Now, the people liked lobster bakes, they liked clams and chowder, and they liked uh, all of those things, but they also wanted the sauces and things that were European. So you had a mix of people and, and foods at that time. Um, the, in the book, uh, there's a, uh, uh, an invitation that the 40 hay seeders have in it, and it's to a party. The 40 uh, hayseeders were a group of uh, local people who, were, they were very tired of the wealthy having these tremendous balls and things going on that they weren't invited to. Even the chauffeurs had a ball, and they weren't invited to that. So they decided that they were going to have their own. And they started this over 100 years now. Uh, they would have uh, a menu of dried fish, um, rat cheese, which is a, a cheddar cheese, and donuts. That was the menu. Still the same menu today. Uh, again, it was kind of, a, uh, kind of a making fun of people, as throughout the years someone has made fun of somebody. Um, so that was, that was who it was. I have a, a, uh, an excerpt from an invitation, which uh, the invitations always had some kind of uh, look at what was going on locally or in the history. So I included uh, one from 1974 of Watergate, uh, the invitation that, from a Mainer's viewpoint of what was going on then. Um, new things, old things, uh, people yearning for foods that they uh, used to have. 
Now, I'm sure that all of you have some memories of childhood food uh, that you say, yeah, I really like that. I, it's nice to have something that brings back memories. And food has a tendency to do that. I don't know what it might be for you individually. It might be something that your mother made or that a friend made or a loved one made. Um, but we all have those kinds of things. Um, and there's also an excerpt in the book uh, during uh, the Civil War of uh, people who were in the war having yearnings for food back home. And it talks a little bit about what they were eating, which was, they had nothing else to talk about, so it was kind of like, well, we had dried beans today, and you know, and then the next day it was beef. We had something else. Um, one of them was uh, a fellow from Maine, who each day he was just, it was a diary of what he was eating. And then all of a sudden it changed. He said that they were having an armistice because they heard that Lincoln was shot. Nothing else until all of a sudden he was back home. He was planting uh, potatoes. He was uh, doing all the things seasonally that someone would do on a farm, which is kind of interesting to see uh, what those kinds of things are. Each of the chapters it goes through a different kind of period of time. It's a mix of recipes, history, and little vignettes about people. It's uh, something about little grocery stores that have uh, slowly become superstores. Not there, but somewhere. Um, so uh, the little markets, there were 40 of them on a small island, uh, and dairies. Uh, all of a sudden, with refrigeration and uh, a uh, grocery store coming in for the first time, it hurt a lot of those people and eventually put most of them, I, I only think of two that I can think of right offhand that are still uh, surviving on uh, Mount Desert Island, and they've turned into kind of a grocery store too. Um, so what happened to those people? They found a new niche, a new way um, to survive. Newer things. Um, well, not really new. In the 50s, um, canned goods, great. Um, Jello came in. All of a sudden, all of those housewives who said, oh, I can't make aspect, I can't make those exotic desserts that these people are used to who have so much money, uh, all of a sudden they could do all of that. They could be inventive, they could just bake plain jello, uh, and uh, that was the fashionable thing to do at that time. It was fashionable before. Um, Kathy made something that is a coffee kind of uh, gelatin that is more fashionable today. It's always been there. It's just changed. In the book, I like to add a few things that would help people, like... I have leftover bread. I have a plan for that. I have leftover coffee. I have a plan for that. 
and I'm not even running for president, but I do have plans for those two things, but other leftovers of thinking uh, out uh, what you're going to eat and just giving a little bit more thought to say, okay, I can get that, but I know I'm going to have some leftovers. Shouldn't even say leftovers. Some extra of something by the time that meal is over. And I'm going to figure out something to do with that now before I, before I purchase it so that you don't have thing, a lot of things that you throw away. Back to the 50s, there were some people who they came to the island um, and nearby areas that wanted to settle the land, and they lived off the land. Some of them have become very well known in back-to-earth kind of, uh, of uh, groups, um, and some interesting uh, farms and interesting people. So they're there. Uh, you have the tourists who are there. You have some remnants of, of a very large stone-producing area. Um, one was on Mount Desert Island and had a population of 5,000. Uh, a lot of Italians with very, very talented carving abilities. Uh, they became New York, Chicago buildings. Um, and uh, they... Um, were bringing their foods with them, uh, but as the stone industry dwindled down, and there's still some, uh, places like Stonington or Hall Quarry uh, saw a, a drop in, in population. Hall Quarry uh, now is just some houses. There's no town there anymore, there's nothing there. So nice, pretty houses but they have that legacy. They know of some of the reasons why there's a, a trend towards some uh, Italian families being there. They used to live on Macaroni Hill, they called it, which is something that they used to call any kind of pasta macaroni. Today, a um, couple of things. Um, I haven't talked very much about seafood. At the end of the book, I was having a hard time trying to get this in the right direction, that everything would be super fine, positive, everything would be good. And uh, it's hard to do that. We have great lobster. We have plenty of lobster. Uh, however, the lobsters have been moving north since 2004 because of global warming. They want cold water. Cod want cold water. They've seen devastating problems of cod in uh, areas around Boston uh, and the southern part of New England because of global warming. Um, we had, you've probably never heard of Maine shrimp. Maine shrimp were very good. Sweet, little tiny, small shrimp, not the kind you want to see in a, in a uh, uh, shrimp cocktail. But they were sweet, they were very good, and they were great for a number of different things. Chowder is certainly one of them, uh, stuffing artichokes, doing all kinds of things with, with, with shrimp. About, I guess it's probably three or four years ago now, they were having some problems because they went out and they couldn't find any shrimp. And they were getting really small amounts of it. So 
they played around with the season. Usually it's in December or January. The shrimp come into the coast and have uh, uh, the little shrimp. And then they go back out again. So in, uh, I guess it's been two years now. Changing that didn't help any. Making the season longer didn't help any. Making it shorter didn't help any. Uh, they said, no more shrimp. No more main shrimp in the near foreseeable future. Well, that's kind of devastating to people who really like main shrimp. And to the fishermen who farmed shrimp between lobster and the, the spring. So last year, uh, I read an article that said, the conditions are not such that the shrimp will probably come back. Yesterday, they were supposed to have a vote, uh, and I didn't see any results in the news, uh, if they were going to loosen up the regulations and let them do some shrimping. I didn't see anything like that. The closest I saw was uh, um, 2023, that maybe they'd see if it would happen. Global warming is a big issue for everybody. Global warming in Maine and the Gulf of Maine is even a bigger issue because it's one of just a few that's the most rapidly warming waters, bodies of water in the world. Not just close by, not, not just kind of comparing it with warm water other places in the country, in the world. What does that mean to other things? Well, they're trying to get the salmon back Salmon is our state fish. How many of you had <laughs> North Atlantic Maine salmon? What was that? Did somebody have some? What was that? Don't buy it or it's not available. Oh, it's not available. Oh, okay. um, there was a fellow who was giving a talk uh, who was part of the Nature Preserve uh, fisheries expert, and he had been with them for 12 years. And he made some statements that are really kind of interesting about fish. He said that they put a stipulation on cod that you, if, you, if it was 21 inches or less, you had to throw it back to try and preserve the cod. I asked him, I said, maybe you'd like to talk about our state fish, our salmon. And he said, well, we're trying to bring them back, but it's global warming. Um, he told me afterwards that they had tracked the salmon, and the salmon, they tracked it back to uh, Greenland. And he said, and then we lost track of it. I either decided to stay there, or I got caught by somebody. So even if they bring back the salmon, are they adaptable enough to be able to change to the, to the warming waters? I don't know. I don't know. Canada is now getting a lot more. We're in a sweet spot for lobster, but Canada is getting them as they go further, further north, and for the cod, and for the haddock, uh, they're all, as they migrate further north, and there are pockets of cold water, but um, that's becoming more and more, and more of an issue. Um, 
someone mentioned to me at a restaurant, she said, ah, who cares? We'll get the uh, uh, Maryland crabs then. Well, they're getting invasive crabs. They're not getting Maryland crabs. And they're getting one uh, things that are, are more prone to parasites. So it's, it's a big issue. And the other issue is industry. Bottom line. Um, so our wild Maine blueberries, they're companies that have uh, moved from down east Maine, which is the world's capital of wild blueberries right now, um, to uh, Canada. And they're planting fields there because they can do it cheaper. So an industry, a society, a blueberry festival each year, blueberry farmers, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's tough. So the kind of um, foods, let me see if there's any, oh, I was going to give you a couple of connections of Maine to Chicago, because there are a few. All right, one of the connections is one of the early rusticators was Henry Ford. Now, you all know Henry Ford probably as a car guy, but a lot of you are really food people, so you might also know that Henry Ford was an early pioneer in soy. And in 1934, he brought a menu of all soy things to um, the 1934 exposition to introduce soy to America. Uh, in the book, I have one of Henry Ford's cooks who wrote a book, Cooking for Henry, and he um, uh, talked about Henry Ford's favorite soy cracker. So it, he used a uh, Model T Ford hubcap as the cookie cutter for it. So uh, Henry Ford thought that most of the world's problems could be solved with soy. He even used soy for parts of a car. Uh, I think that was in 1908. It didn't do as well as he would have hoped it to, to do, but he did have a research center uh, and had people studying it. So uh, a lot of good ideas kind of get dissolved down and don't catch on as quickly as people would like them to. Um, but he was one of the early uh, um, rusticators. His soar, uh, son, Etzel Ford, uh, had a home on Mount Desert Island, which Martha Stewart now owns. Um, another uh, person who you all know, Julia Child, their family had a compound on Mount Desert Island. I have some little excerpts about her in there. Um, she, her, her husband, Paul's brother, Charles, wrote a book about building a house on an island. Uh, and one of the little excerpts was when Julia and Paul were coming to visit for a couple of weeks, and they, she had just graduated from Cordon Bleu, and how they had, she had scooped up the girls and was teaching him all these types of French dishes, uh, and he made a comment of like, and I let out my notch, of, my pants, a few notches, my belt. Um, but she also was doing scraping of bark off of 
trees that they cut down, and you know, they were doing things to build a house from scratch. Uh, they were very concerned that they wanted to have a fireplace in the kitchen at, at uh, table height so they could cook steaks there because everybody loves steaks. So uh, I asked her uh, nephew, who has written a, a book uh, with pictures from, I think primarily from her trip in, in France, if they actually did ever make the fireplace. And he said, yeah. He said, a lot of times it's just covered over. But yeah, they do have that there. So she's in the book. Um, an interesting thing about, again, after I'd already told you my story about the cover of the book, about the, having the right title. Well, after we resolved that, <laughs> I looked at the, the cover a little bit longer, and I said, uh, you've got Julia Child on the cover. And I got permission from the Schlesinger Library to use that inside the book, but it couldn't be for any kind of promotion. So uh, uh, what do you think? And he said, we're going to take it off. <laughs> and her cat was on the, the cover, too. So they're in the book someplace, but they're not on the, on the cover. Um, um, I, with the book, I try and give you uh, a little bit of a, a insight into history. Uh, some people who are living there, and some food that they were making. Back 10,000 years, I have a recipe for, for a 10,000-year-old recipe. Lots of things we're still doing. Things aren't changing as much as you think. We're just getting a lot more potential for change because of ingredients. Uh, but, you know, like you were saying about your Instant Pot, uh, amount of time, size, speed, um, those are things that uh, all base themselves around what the Wabanaki did, which was roasting, boiling, drying. So those things. So the um, end of the book, I did find some interesting things to, uh, to add to the end of the book that I thought were pretty nice things. One of them was uh, a uh, I went to the library. I was actually late to getting to a, books, a book fair, and I saw this stack of magazines. And on the top cover, it said, The Beauty of Fat. And I thought, well, that sounds good. <laughs> so I uh, got the, the stack of books and, and read an article about that fat cells aren't all bad, that they're the, the body's natural first aid kit. So if you cut your finger, your fat cells go and run off to take care of your cut, cut finger and stuff. Um, so I kind of liked that idea. Um, they also said that, that there was research being done that if you had bad knees or bad hip or something, that maybe taking some of the stuff that people used for liposuction and stuff and reinserted it back in knees and other places, that that might be uh, a possibility for for solving some of those problems. The other thing was that I put at the end of the book, I, I talked to um, Ed Liu, who's the uh, CEO of the uh, Worldwide Research Center Jackson Laboratory. He, they, their headquarters is on Mount Desert Island. And I was really hoping, since he had traveled all over the world, that I would find something that would make me live forever from his knowledge of go traveling all over the world. 
I thought, okay, it's probably something, some easy little thing that he's found that he's, well, he said what you always hear, um, which wasn't any surprise, uh, to moderate your calories, to have a mix of different things and stuff like that. So, so I thought, okay. But one of the things he did say was really interesting, and that was, uh, uh, I mean, that's interesting, but you, you know you should eat well. Um, was he said, have you noticed how dog food companies are going back to meat? And um, he said that's because dogs' DNA require meat. He said everybody is different. So if I were going to give you a, a, a diet for you, it would be different than for Kathy or for you or for you because all of us are a little bit different. Um, so I, I, I learned something from, from that. Uh, I learned something from a number of different people throughout the book, some little excerpts of one of the things, if you've read the book Cod, uh, he mentions that um, newer, new things, new things, want new things. Um, and be, because of, of uh, the new things, that oftentimes there were problems with those new things. It didn't work. But people never go back to what worked. They create something new to take care of the problems that, that they found with the last thing. And if that didn't work, then something newer to, to uh, take care of the newest thing. So uh, new things old things, it's good to get a good feeling as to uh, recipes, some very easy, that it could kind of be a base for people, uh, and some that are, you know, you see things trending differently because of different, um, different ingredients. And we're, I can understand why people don't want to cook. Uh, I can understand why people are overwhelmed uh, because now there's just so much. Um, Kathy said that she went in, uh, uh, to check on a few things uh, when she was doing some co the cooking back there. The internet has uh, probably 10,000 ways to make a muffin. Find a good way to make a muffin and stick with it. <laughs> um, and so that's what I've tried to do with the book. There's some good things in there uh, that work. And if you have a base of that, then you could go play with other things and make something new. So with that said, um, maybe you might have some questions that I could answer. If the rest of you are deaths like myself, what he was asking was uh, if uh, wild blueberries are cultivated blueberries. No, they're very different. Wild blueberries are basically wild blueberries. They've been in Maine for 10,000 years. Uh, they just kind of came there with something that flew over or walked in. They're not cultivated. The ones that are cultivated are blueberries that are larger than a wild blueberry. They're not as sweet as a wild blueberry. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm sure Canada has some that are cultivated as well, but they're planting wild blueberries up there. Um, they're, 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 parts, they're parts of the country that lend themselves to being able to, uh, to grow wild blueberries. And it's that little strip across the country, Maine, Canada, upper part of Michigan probably, uh, a little, little, 
little across there. Anything else is cultivated, the ones that are planted. Lobsters, uh, with some things people can take away and grow it themselves. A very good example of this is in 1934, we were the largest producer of potatoes in the world. Well, people moved west, what can I tell you? Uh, so all of those uh, potatoes could be planted and grown in other places, like Idaho and California. Uh, lobster is a little different. The main lobster, there is a, a North Atlantic lobster that is European as well, but uh, you can only grow that in a certain area. And they did try and take that over to the West Coast, people, to say, okay, you think you've got all the lobsters, we're gonna do them over here. And they lost track of them, they don't, I don't know what happened to them. I'll see if I can remember, even two short questions. Um, Farm-raised, uh, I'll first of all tell you my bias about farm-raised. I don't buy any fish from Malaysia that's been farm-raised uh, because of bacteria and things like that. Lobsters are uh, not farm-raised, uh, they're caught in traps uh, out in the ocean, and that way, well, f lobsters can live for a couple of days without water. They could be on the land, and they can live for a few days in different situations, like in a, in a tank, you see lobsters in, in Chicago. But to try and raise them in a pen, I don't know of anyone who's done that, because uh, the lobstermen hold very tight to their traps, and you know that you're getting them fresh without the problems of, of bacteria and parasites and things like that. And then the second thing you asked, oh, I wanted to talk about the, the other fish. Um, I, don't, I don't like farm-raised things. That's a personal thing. Um, I see too many problems with it, especially for health, for people. But you could, you know, you can do some of those things. I think that they're doing that with clams somewhat. With uh, uh, oysters, they're doing a lot of the farming up there. Um, uh, they're trying to do with, well, actually, mussels are pretty easy because mussels, uh, they cling to something and then they're there for life. They don't migrate. They don't go anywhere, so that would be a pretty easy. In fact, some of the mussels, they're now growing on strings. They're keeping them in the ocean, though, they're, but they're using them on strings. So, um, seam or boil. Um, there are a couple of ways you can kill a lobster. I said that once in a class, and I, I started laughing to myself because it, it kind of reminded me of that, that song, There Must Be 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover. Uh, there must be 50 ways to kill a lobster, you run over. No. Um, there's uh, a place right here that if you have a sharp knife, you can cut in there, it's the major vein. Um, the, you can steam them, uh, you can boil them. Personally, if you're going to eat a lobster and cook a lobster, I prefer head first into a, a boiling water. I think it's, I think it's um, more civilized and it's gonna kill him right away. Uh, steaming it, you know, it's not going to die right away. So uh, I did for that reason. But you could steam a lobster. In fact, you'll probably find some grocery stores here that'll steam a lobster for you, cook it for you, and you could just pick it up and, and take it home. Um, you don't see any change in the texture or the taste when you boil 
as long as it's not cooked too much. That's, that's a problem. Uh, it becomes rubbery if you cook it too much, and you don't want to undercook it because if you do, then it's, it's not, it's, yeah. Um, if, you, if you did boil it, um, it's not going to lose flavor. It's inside the shell. Um, and if you put it in this way, that tail is going to flip up and you're going to be covered with boiling water. So you just have to know that. Um, but steaming it, um, I, I would, I, if I'm going to kill something, <laughs> lobster is the only thing I kill, um, I, I'd prefer it to be quick. And, uh, and that was a, was that a steam lobster? Okay. Yeah, Maine is pretty much, um, well, you know, you can get them all over. You can have them shipped from there, too. Uh, I was in Heathrow Airport, and uh, the, you know, Square United and U.S. Airways at the time, uh, were, were, everybody was waiting for their plane. And I was looking around, and I saw this counter that said seafood, packed to travel. And so I thought, oh, I'll go learn something. Walked over, and I said, you got a lobster. And he said... Yes, he said, this is the best lobster in the world. It's from Maine. And I'm thinking, what? Somebody's going to buy a lobster to go back to that area from England to Maine lobster? Carry it back to Philadelphia or Boston? It makes a very festive uh, meal. And uh, certainly uh, Christmas Eve or New Year's Eve, uh, it's something that stands out as being different and un unusual. So yeah, I can certainly appreciate that. Any lobster question? Has everybody here eaten a lobster? Anybody not? I don't know. <laughs> it was something. It was a something. Um, and just going back to uh, being humane uh, in um, France and Europe, traditional is they weren't very humane to killing lobsters. They would just kill it in, in, in ways that weren't uh, very considerate of the lobster. But I'll tell you one thing that's kind of an interesting thing about the lobster that you may not know. If this lobster got in a fight with someone, Obviously, he's win because, he'd win because he's rubber, but that's not it. Uh, he, if, he thought he was gonna, if a lobster thought he was going to lose a battle, he'd say, okay, here, you can take my claw. I'm getting out of here. And he'd leave. He can uh, rejuvenate. He can make a new lobster claw uh, from that. And there, so there are studies to being done uh, for people who are amputees or people who have uh, problems of losing some limb. Of how, how, how can the lobster do that? Uh, some of the, the medical ingredient in mussels uh, you'll find in some of the uh, medicines because mussels have a very, very tight hinge. Uh, so that's uh, an interesting thing, too. Um, so do you have any questions about him? Yeah, he, could, he could live for a long time. Well, uh, I think Kathy has some food she's made. Um, one of them is uh, an Indian cake from an 1864 recipe from a cookbook uh, in the Bangor Historical Society that actually tastes like a light uh, cornbread. Um, and, but they use corn a lot. 
um, at that time. Uh, and then as the colonies took hold, they brought all of those things that they wanted from home, like cows and pigs and chickens so, uh, and wheat, so they could, you saw a totally different kind of recipes in cookbooks because they had different things um, that were available to them. Um, the other thing she's making, she's, she made some chowder and she made a, um, oh, uh, a more, um, a newer version of a gelatin type of dessert. If you were making aspects in the late 1800s, if you were making jello in the 50s, or if you're making gelatin type of desserts now. There's a, a one that I use all the time for uh, Chinese New Year. It's not in the book, but it's an almond and mandarin oranges. So gelatin's still being used. It's just being used differently. It's a, it's a circle of things. Anyway, it's coffee, something you can do with your leftover coffee, and it has a little twist in that the uh, whipped cream has a little touch of uh, curry to it, which makes it kind of... Huh? And a little bit different. That is, those, those things are in the book, the ones that, that she has back there. So thank you all very much.